Hello, and thank you so much for joining me this week on Invisible Not Broken. Today, we're going to talk to someone who has Crohn's disease. And what was that like to be told that you have something like Crohn's disease in college? Don't assume that losing weight is a good thing. What raising a family is really like with a chronic illness. The rainbows and unicorns of the Canadian healthcare system. Okay, maybe not the unicorns, but I'm thinking yes on the rainbows. Getting a diagnosis as a young woman. Hint to doctors, it is not hysteria. It is almost never hysteria. The upside of chronic illness, the toxic friend cleanse, and how to be supportive to the spoonie in your life, or what to ask for if you are a spoonie. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I do. We don't use full names in this podcast because she did wish to remain semi-anonymous. Thank you and enjoy the show. Hi, I am Amanda and I am a Canadian living on the West Coast with Crohn's disease. And you also do mediation, is that right? Yes, so I do conflict resolution and mediation work, usually with businesses. And for your Crohn's disease, when did that really start to affect you? Um, So that's a good question. I'm not actually totally sure when it started because it sort of crept up really quickly in some ways and in other ways was probably there for a long time. So the first time I actually realized that something was very, very wrong, I was in my fourth year of my undergraduate degree. And so I would have been about 21 and I was losing weight really fast and throwing up everything I ate. And, uh, and people would be like, so are you pregnant? Oh, like, okay. no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> when are people going to learn that unless someone is actually being wheeled into labor and delivery units, you do not ask that question. <laughs> well, it's just like, that's the thing that people ask when you're like throwing up every morning and you're a female and you're in your early twenties. And, and it took a long time to be, for it to sort of be taken seriously. So I was, you know, I'd had a hockey injury and I had gained some weight and so I was slightly heavy. And as I'm losing my like two to three pounds a week, people are thinking, oh, this is good for you. Oh God. I'm thinking, no, this is not good for me. Um, um, and so I probably like, yeah, it took, it took a long time to get taken seriously and to have people actually start to, to realize that something was like really not okay. And then it took probably another two and a half years to get a diagnosis. And so you are dealing with the Canadian healthcare system, which I am just starting to learn about. And we Americans get so many wonderful fairy tales about your, we either get horror stories, like nightmare stories, (laughs) or we get told these like beautiful unicorns dancing fairy tales. Um, what, What is that like to try to get a diagnosis for something that is invisible and probably not incredibly commonly understood by every doctor in Canada? Oh, well, it, it was an interesting process. I mean, our medical system is really good at dealing with stuff that's an emergency. Like you show up and you're at the emergency room and you're bleeding or something's broken. They tend to be great. Um, and I have to say the doctors, like once, once they got over me being like young and female and actually took me seriously because it's surprisingly difficult, I think worldwide to get taken seriously. Every female will understand what you just said. (laughs) Right? Like it's just, it's just incredibly hard to get taken seriously. So like I, I remember people being like, well, are you taking something because you're uncomfortable about your weight? Like, could this be a reaction to some like weird pill you ordered (laughs) off the internet? And I'm like, no, that's not what I like. I wouldn't do that. They're like, okay, so are you anxious? Like, I'm like, I don't think people throw up this much and are in this much pain because they're anxious. 
They're like, well, do you think? And so there was a lot of like, they kind of ruled out the really basic stuff, right? Like you don't have an obvious parasite, you know, you don't have stomach ulcers. We put you on antibiotics, nothing happened, right? So they kind of ruled out the basic stuff. And then there was a lot of like, well, maybe you're just crazy. Oh God. Right. Like a, a little bit of that, like, cause, uh, because you can, like you can think yourself into being violently ill. Yeah. That's possible. Right. But there was a bit of this, like, you know, that, that kind of space. But then I, you know, I'd been away at school and I kind of went back to like my childhood family doctor who knew me a little bit more. And he's like, okay, like, let's get serious. Right. Yeah. And so then it was the, like, like, this is obviously something so let's figure it out. And I didn't have the classic symptoms. So okay, the classic, yeah, the, the classic symptoms are all, uh, like lower bowel stuff. So the classic symptoms are like extreme diarrhea, like all that kind of stuff. And while I had some of those symptoms, I did a lot more vomiting than is normal for Crohn's disease. And my inflammation was a lot higher in the digestive system than is kind of standard for Crohn's disease. And then I functioned at a level that was much higher than what they expected. So when they finally, like, like I, when I finally got hospitalized the first time and they took like my blood pressure and looked at my blood levels, they were like, they went into crazy mode because my blood pressure was so low and my blood levels were so low. They couldn't actually figure out how I'd walked in. Yeah. Right. So like my blood pressure tends to be like 75 over 30. Yeah. Wow. Oh my God. <laughs> right. That's which um... is like, which means they don't understand how I can walk upstairs. You could terrify an EMT with those numbers. Right. And they always, like every time, like I go into a doctor's office, they take my blood pressure and then they start to call 911. Yeah. Like, no, 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 that's, no. <laughs> that's normal. That, that, I know it's freaking you out, but like that's, it's been that way for years. Um, but I'm little. And so part of, part of having really like, when you're smaller, you tend to have lower blood pressure and then also being extremely anemic. So, um, like my hemoglobin count, they always say you're over a hundred and I think I was at like 65. And so they were like immediately like blood transfusion, like it was the whole nine yards and you're suddenly you're sitting there and you're like, so now we've gone from like, you're fine. It's all in your head to so freaked out. They're starting to freak me out. Oh God. <laughs> like you, you've done like the whole flip. Um, but they still didn't know what was wrong. And, uh, and it took a long time and a lot of tests to kind of put everything together. So Crohn's disease is an inflammatory disease, basically autoimmune of the digestive system. And there's a very, um, specific scarring pattern that starts to show up in the intestines when somebody's had active Crohn's disease for a long time. And that's usually how it's diagnosed. And so I have that scarring pattern through the sort of last part of my small intestine. So um, but they had to find it with a camera before they really knew it was there. I'm going to take a wild guess that that camera was not comfortable to get that picture. Um, it, well, there's, there's, they, did, they scoped from both ends. Okay. So it was one of those kind of things. And I, I'll, I'll tell you that the scope that goes up from the bottom end is much more comfortable than the scope that goes down from the top end. Is it really? Okay. Oh yeah. Because you can't, so like when the thing is in your face, so the scope, I mean, it's about, I'd say, uh, using Canadianisms, the scope feels like it's about as big around as a toonie, which is maybe like uh, for American audience, like an inch and a half to two inches in diameter. 
Okay. And they put it down your throat. And they don't want to damage your throat, and so they numb your throat a little bit, but they need you conscious to help swallow the tube, and then they have to keep reminding you that you can still breathe. I almost want to put the video up because I feel like all the expressions I'm making are are what everyone is listening is making right now. Like, it's just, like, it's gross. And then, because, you know, humans have gag reflexes, you're vomiting on yourself while they're scoping you, right? Like, it's it's awful. Whereas the other one is, like, slightly uncomfortable with some abdominal pressure, and you can close your eyes and pretend you're not there. Like, it's just not a big deal by comparison. I, I, <laughs> by comparison is a really important sentence there. <laughs> that's, Great, like, that's I mean, it's, it's I mean, the, the, not a big deal. <laughs> the oral scope was the worst test I've ever done. I'm by a like a lot. All the tests you've done that really says a lot about that. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of like, the few tests I haven't had. I've had almost everything in the gambit, but those two I have not had yet. Yeah, I mean the bottom one seems like it would be really uncomfortable, but it's I mean the scope is relatively small and they give you like a set of muscle relaxants and a bit of rohypnol so you're only kind of coherent. Okay. And like, it's just like, it's not really like, I I don't know. It's not really painful. I mean, it's your body, like you'll feel kind of pushing in your middle, but it's as far as things go, it's, I mean, the worst part of that test for most people is that to see stuff, they have to fill your intestine with air. So you have really bad gas for like the 12 hours afterwards. And being young, that must have really uh, changed your social life for a few hours. <laughs> and I'm sure that even the vomiting probably changed your... So we're, I'm going to head back just a little bit. Because <laughs> you're telling me that in college, in the last part of college, you started to experience this constant vomiting and horrible stomach upset. How did that work out with your social life, your friends, other things, your schoolwork? Did, did this affect your classes? Oh, yeah. No, so I ended up... Uh doing a medical withdrawal from that semester and it took me about a year to finish. Um, and what I hadn't noticed is how low my energy level had gotten. So I'd been using like, I have to study as like excuses to not go out because I was exhausted, but I hadn't recognized that I was exhausted. Right. Like I, I really wasn't functioning, but it took a long time to figure out you know, cause it was like a little bit at a time. First, I wasn't going out, you know, that much on weeknights. And then I wasn't going out that much on weekends. And then, well, that class isn't really important and I've got lots to do, so I'm not going to make it to that class. And so there was this really like burrowing in because I had no energy, but in hindsight, I was also getting no calories. So like, I was lucky if I was keeping down like a piece of toast a day. You must so, have been Wonder Woman. Like, I'm just trying to figure out how, with everything you were dealing with, you functioned at all, let alone to get to any of your classes. Well, I, you know, and that's the thing that's weird. You just keep, and so there's these sort of, there's these moments where you're like, whoa, something's not right here. You know, like, I'm trying to write an essay, and I can't come up with, like, sentences that are more than, like, six words long, and I can't remember what I just wrote, and, like, my brain was not functioning. And like, I remember writing this exam and being like, I'm normally a really good student, but I can't answer any of these questions. Wow. And how did your professors handle, were they understanding or did you not have the language to really talk to them about what was going on? 
I think I was so overwhelmed with what was going on that I basically just unplugged. Like I remember sending like a couple emails being like, I'm sick. I'm not okay. I'm withdrawing from your class and then not hearing back. Or maybe I did and I just wasn't right. Like I was so sick at that point that I wasn't actually capable of disengaging well. Right. So, I mean, the school was great. They got my thing. Like I missed uh, midterms because I was in the hospital. <laughs> I'm like in the <laughs> hospital. I'm not at midterms. <laughs> Sorry, <Yeah>, guys. Reasons. <laughs> and, and they were actually really quite positive. The professors that I built relationships with were much more understanding and much more sort of positive about things, but they also just didn't really know what to do. Right. Like they're kind of seeing a student like melt away yeah. And not really having, I mean, they don't have the skills to engage with that. They don't know what to do or how to deal. And then when you just cease to be there anymore, they don't really know how to reach out or what would be appropriate. That's, that's actually fair. Like it'd be really hard to know what an appropriate response would be. Right. It's, or and if it would be welcome. Yeah. Like those kind of pieces, like where it would be. So, I mean, I don't. It, it took a while and I think to actually like get all of those credits done. And I have, I have a few moments where I'm like, like there was, there was a few like last pieces of homework that I needed to kind of like finish up and submit. And you kind of look at them and you're like, I think they gave me a pass on this because they <laughs> just felt sorry for me and wanted me to be done. Right? There's nothing wrong with taking the sympathy see. Yeah. And for you for social, how did your friends react to this? Um, some were incredibly supportive. Um, and some were awful. Uh-huh. And, and what it was like this really, so people like I would, I would cancel out on stuff and people would take it really personally sometimes or like that. Uh, if you don't show up, sometimes you're just not there. So in some ways it was very isolating, but you very quickly realized who my like good friends that I need to keep around are. I think we haven't usually like in our early twenties, I don't think most people have gone through like a toxic friend purge. Oh, it's those the are best way in the <laughs> world to go through a toxic friend purge is to get really sick because anybody that was too like egocentric to handle the fact that like I couldn't go to their birthday could no longer be my friend, right? Like it just wasn't working. And I didn't have the energy to be gentle about those kinds of things. Um, But there were just some amazing people that like really stepped up and showed up and kind of met me where I was at. So, you know, I had a really good friend, Sharon, who would like show up at my house and we'd have tea and then we'd like walk around the block. And then she would know that I needed a nap and she would disappear again. You just answered the question I was going to ask you, which is like, what, what would look good and supportive in a friend? And that sounds like a very good supportive friend. Yeah. I mean, I had some really, really amazing friends and like people that would like show up and take me to stuff. They'd be like, okay, so we want to go camping and we know you're not really okay. So if we do everything, would you come? Wow. And... Right. And then, and then I'd be like, can I tell you like on the day? <laughs> can I tell you in the car while we're driving? Right. <laughs> like, you know, it, it, like what's the backup plan <laughs> if it doesn't work? There's a hotel. Right. Like by. what's that? 
and they'd set it all up and then we would go. And so I had some really good experiences. I mean, I went on a hiking camping trip with my brother where he basically like carried me up a mountain. That was some serious family. <laughs> right? Like, so some really super positive things. I mean, I went on a trip to Europe with my dad where it was like I had like all the medication in the world just in case stuff went badly. But I was in a point where I was like a little bit less pukey than normal. And so why not go lie on a beach okay. in the Mediterranean? Pukey is a new word now. That's, that's going to be used. <laughs> that's a good word. <laughs> <laughs> So it sounds like your family is tremendously supportive, um, especially post-diagnosis. How did they handle pre-diagnosis? I think they were just scared and a little bit uh, at a loss. Right? They just didn't really know what to do. And I think that I think that's pretty normal. Like your family's just standing there like, we don't know what's going on. Yeah. I mean, my mom knew something was really wrong and my dad just didn't know what to do. And my brother had been away at school. And so when he came back, he was like, oh, my God, what is going on? Because um, one of the other things is when you have no food, you're also super pale. So I was like, I was like white enough that I probably would have glowed under black lights. <laughs> like, like I could blend with like hospital walls. Like it was it was like really like super, super pale. That's um, a good way to get out of the test. You can just like stand <laughs> against the wall and just really still. <laughs> Yeah. No, it's, it's an interesting kind of space where like, they're just, we're family, like you've, they've no idea how to be supportive. Right. I mean, like we, uh, like my mom for a while was like, like researching crazy things on the internet and making me try them. Right. Okay. This should help. No, no, I'm not trying that. It smells (laughs) terrible. (laughs) You know, like she was so, I mean, my mom was so desperate to find anything that would help that like if somebody had showed up with some scam, she would have spent millions of dollars, right? Like she would have like remortgaged the house, like you name it, she would have done it to figure it out. Um, And my dad is a much more scientifically minded person who was sitting there, I think like desperately trying to like not have somebody like take advantage of us and yet not like wanting to like extinguish hope, especially before diagnosis where we're like, uh, basically I looked like I was dying and nobody knew how to help me. So here's a question because I, uh, I will try to keep my blood pressure down while I talk about the, um, snake oil that gets out there and the <sighs> scams, um, because hope is, a, <laughs> a dangerous and a beautiful thing all at once. And you know, as a mom, you would fight anything, do anything, um, I know it's really a big thing here because our healthcare system is pretty intense on cost. Um, a lot of the the procedures you talked about and tests you talked about, even with insurance here, would cost thousands of dollars. Um, how does this work in Canada for um, for these like experimental things? Is that something you guys would have to pay out of pocket for? Is it something that you have like an insurance that steps in or uh, an insurance you pay for? Well, there's 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 a few different things. So like. All of the tests I went and had done were all paid for by, like, the regular socialized medical stuff. So wow. all the scopes <laughs> and all of that stuff. That, that stuff's all covered. That's a fairy tale out here. <laughs> medications are often not covered. So a lot of the drugs that I took were not covered okay. by that stuff. But I was um, young enough that I still, because I was still in school when I first got sick, I counted as still being on my parents' medical plan. Right. 
And so they have extended medical care through work and extended medical care pays for um, a lot of non non kind of core medical stuff and then a lot of your alternative stuff. So, you know, crutches and and certain medications and certain like equipment, wheelchairs, that kind of stuff tends to be extended healthcare coverage, okay. glasses, dental work, that those kind of pieces. And then a lot of your drugs, like the sort of the socialized medical part. So the Canadian healthcare system will pay for drugs once you've spent ever so much, or if your income is below some certain like bottom threshold. So, and I don't actually know what that is because the medications that I've taken at least in the last little bit, they're not expensive ones. So I'll never hit that threshold. And I think it's like $1,500 in the year before they start paying for medication. But it also means that the medication has to be off an approved list. So like I take, well, not right now, but when I'm in like mild flare up, I take um, five amino salicylic acid, which is like a special version of aspirin. Okay. And it comes in like there's 300 varieties of it with these different coatings that try to get it to dissolve in the part of the digestive system where it's needed. Okay. Wow. So you can see how this would be a little bit experimental, right? Like we yeah. would like this medication to dissolve like seven and a half feet through your small intestine. It, it sounds <laughs> theoretical with science backing it. <laughs> right. And so, so they kind of, they try to, to get you on the right one through some experimentation, but the older ones are significantly cheaper than the newest ones. So the newest, most, you know, high end of these coatings is like 50 bucks a pill. And the oldest one is like 10 cents a pill. That's quite a difference. It's a huge (laughs) difference, right? And so like the one that actually suits me the best is one of the cheapest. Yay. Right. Woo. One of the few wins. So so when, like when I'm in full flare up, I take eight of these a day to like a grand total of a dollar. Oh, wow. So can you describe what a flare up would look like? Or I mean, you don't have to give me visuals, but what is it like? (laughs) So, um, they always, the first flare up tends to be the worst. And so I notice them sooner. So I don't usually have the extreme, kinds of reactions I had when I was younger and hadn't figured out you know, like how to notice them right away and then what what they're doing so like it's generally it means that there's like an increase of inflammation in my intestines and so somewhere and for me that's usually the small intestine um, and so you notice first that like when you eat you don't feel well um I bloat in the middle. So while normally I would wear a size like 12, suddenly like I'm having trouble with size 16 pants fitting around my middle, but yet I not, I don't weigh anymore. Right. Like it's kind of like I swell in the middle and then, um, things like I'll throw stuff up or I will have like, you know, diarrhea. Well, it's not, diarrhea is not the right word. It's like, uh, spasmy, like, kind of feelings through like my lower back where like you're kind of your colon is like freaking out, but not necessarily because you have to go to the bathroom. It's just having a little freak out. So I would imagine this would drastically affect your day and what you can plan to do. Yeah. Um, now the thing is, is that like, there's, 
it sort of depends on where you kind of hit it in in its sort of flare-up state. And I don't have very many right now. So okay. you know, there's one of those things where I notice them a lot sooner and I notice them before they start to really impact me. And then I have like my set of management things, which some of them might be superstitions, but right <laughs> now they're working. <laughs> so, oh God, I, I understand that. <laughs> right? Like I kind of, like I have this whole thing where... Um, one of the things I learned early on was something that can trigger flare up is what's called bacteria overgrowth through the intestines. Um, because one of the things that can get out of balance for people when they're sick and they've been on it, et cetera, is like the amount of sort of bacteria matter through the intestines can get really screwed up. And then it causes that immune reaction that can then roll back into your having an autoimmune reaction, right? Because the inflammation started for this bacteria, but now you're freaking out. And so one of the ways to kind of lower the bacterial load through your intestines is to stop feeding the bacteria. Oh, so right? I would assume there's a lot of foods like sugars that would. Well, what's interesting is it's like, so the kinds sugars are mostly if they're not in complex forms absorbed in the stomach. Oh, yay. right. Cause so your clear fluids are absorbed for the most part in the stomach. And so it's other things that then go past the stomach. And it depends on the sugar. So like if you're lactose intolerant, you haven't broken the lactose down at that point, it's going to end up in the, in the colon or like in the small intestine. But there's where you're kind of, you need foods that aren't going to make it to the small intestine. And so I have this tendency to do like a 24 to 48 hour, like clear fluid fast where it's like homemade turkey broth and tea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right because it like all of that's going to be absorbed in in the stomach and nothing's going to make it through to my intestines um but you can't go very long like that because there's no nutrition in it and so like if it gets bad enough like one of the things they you'll you'll hear about people talking as a treatment for Crohn's is bowel rest which basically means starving the 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 bowels and so there's that's a way a of doing really that nice with an way to phrase with, that <laughs> Hmm? that's a, a nice way to phrase not eating it guess right well there's there's a way to do it with an iv feed so you can okay. be hospitalized and they can they can do like a, a line where they're giving you nutrition through your bloodstream instead of through your bowels. but that seems extreme and if i can do a short fast at home instead of having to do like a three-week fast in the hospital i would significantly prefer a short fast at home is you're a mom also, and I just three <laughs> weeks away from home would be a, a lot on your family, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, I haven't had to do that since a few years before my oldest daughter was born, so it's been a while since I was that sick. Um, and I would like to, I would love to credit myself with having figured it out, but there's also a lot of rumors about how um, women tend to get some resolution to Crohn's through pregnancy for a little while afterwards. Wow. You know, pregnancy is like usually the thing that destroys everything. It so needs to know it could like help with well, something. Well, it, it, it kind of rearranges stuff a little bit. Just, yeah, a tad. <laughs> and so, I mean, and that's like, there's not good research on that, but there's an awful lot of anecdotal evidence from talking with other people with Crohn's that, you know, people tend to get respite for a little while after they have a baby. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's longer for some people. Sometimes it's not, but that's not uncommon. 
Um, so your children are starting to get to the age of reason. Have you had any talks <laughs> with them? And I, I say the age of reason, just depending on the child. I've known older children who, who aren't there yet. Um, I've known adults not there yet. But have you had any talks with them? Or how do you, um, or do they need to know anything? How does this work with parenting with Crohn's? Um, I'm pretty transparent about stuff, um, mostly because if things happen, they need to know what to do, right? So yeah. there are times where I will get sick and things will be canceled and they will just have to deal with it because I cannot drive them somewhere I am throwing up. Because, <laughs> uh. and, but there's that other piece where it's like I make I use my disease for no excuses at all unless I have to. Okay. Right? So it's there's no, like, I don't feel like it slash I'm too sick. Like, that can't happen. So that if I'm like, I, I cannot do this because, right? If it's like, I'm going to drop you off at school today in my pajamas and I'm going <laughs> back to bed, it's because I need to, not because I want to. And... I think that, I mean, that's like a personal boundary for me that I think really, really helps because then when I take time or I say that, like, I can't do that today, I'm not feeling okay. My family doesn't have to guess at whether I'm serious. Yeah. And it's that because it's so hard. Like they can't tell. There's no, you can't look at me and see that I'm not okay today. I mean, people that know me really well start to see signs. Both my partner and my mom will see, like, I get uh, these really dark circles under my eyes that are kind of visible if you know me and you know what to look for. Or, like, certain certain things, like I get, like, a bit of a shake in my right hand when I'm really tired or, like, these kind of little signals. Yeah. But if you don't know what to look for, I look totally fine. And that makes it really hard. Hmm? (laughs) That is the crux of invisible illness is that there's nothing necessarily outward that anyone know. You might be on a bus ready to just throw up everything and no one would know to go, oh, God, sit down. Well, I I do. I've had lots of transit experiences like where I am so shaky because I haven't been keeping food down and I'm so tired and I just want to get home and I'm sitting down and some elderly guy who's in way better shape than me is like berating me to get out of the seat because I'm young and I should be able to stand. And I'm, and I'm like about to cry because I'm like, I can't, I can't stand all the way home. I I can't do it. And so there's that, it's that, it's that space where, you know, like I've I've learned a lot of empathy for other people who look like they're just being jerks in the world too. (laughs) Cause I would, I would look like I, you know, I'm I'm like, like, I can't, I can't do this. And you have no idea why. Right. (laughs) I I think we all maybe need to, especially in this world order lately, have a lot more empathy for our fellow, (laughs) for even people who are looking like jerks. Yeah, and I remember like being pregnant on the bus and people kept giving me seats and I'm like, I could have used this seat like two years ago when I couldn't stand. But now when I'm totally okay to stand on the bus all the way, like all the seats are mine. <laughs> like, <Oy. laughs> Maybe we all need to wear like a special t-shirt that just like has like invisible illness logo on it or something. It's like, please understand. <laughs> like, Well, it's, it's like, it's like the, uh the uh the disabled parking spot ticket things like the little hangies i got into that the other day that was fun 
Well, it just, it happens where like I was given one for my last semester of school just because they were like, if you can drive and you can park right by your class, then you can make it. And I was like, I think so. And so they gave me through the university, this, you know, this, you know, a a disability parking pass. And it was the difference between me being able to finish and not very much. And yet when I get out of my vehicle and I look fine, mm-hmm. <laughs> people don't understand. Uh, I'm guessing they didn't understand loudly or <laughs> did they come up and, and talk to you about it or have any? Um, I've definitely had a few run-ins with people that were not impressed. Um, with you are so and, perfectly polite and I'm, I, I, I'm wondering if the Canadian thing is true that you guys are just always so nice. that was so kindly phrased that was politically perfectly phrased (laughs) well I think the big thing is is that like if you've known somebody that legitimately needs that spot and I look like I'm like fraudulently taking advantage of like my mother's past or something right because it couldn't possibly be mine then there is that kind of righteous indignation. Like, who are you to be using this? Like, these spots are for people who legitimately need them. And when I see somebody with a Ferrari and no dangly thing parked in that spot, I feel the same indignation where I'm like, hey, how dare you? Somebody needs that. Yeah. Right? And so it's that, like, like I get it. Um, but part of that is like, we don't know what's going on behind what people look like, but our society is very looks focused. So like in high school, I was a very athletic kid and by athletic, I mean like thick and athletic, like not Mm -hmm. remotely feminine. And then when I got sick, I dropped like an incredible amount of weight. Like you can, my, my upper like ribs are physically visible it's disgusting right and uh and then like and I moved back with my parents for a little bit and so I'm in kind of the places I went to high school and I remember like running into people and be like you look amazing I'm like are you fucking kidding me I'm dying oh right Ah, I don't know how old you are but I'm I'm 40 and when I was your when I was that age the big look was Kate Moss and it was like not only were you supposed to be skinny but you were supposed to be looking like you were dying usually the heroin overdose was was the preferable look and And I had that look down wow yeah that's um it's amazing what we decide is going to be the epitome of social norm and beauty and it usually is for women looking desperately unhealthy Well, and so, and so that was like, it was really interesting to me where I'm like, I liked my body when I was in high school because it worked. It did every, it did everything I wanted it to do. I played high level ice hockey and I would challenge it. It would like rise to the occasion. I could do amazing things. And then I'm at this point where I'm like, nothing is working. Mm. Right. I look in the mirror and I see an alien looking back at me. Like it was in kind of that space where like, you know, like my arms look skeletal to me and like, it was like. You know, where, and yet people that knew me when I was like 15 think this weird skeletal dying version looks so much better. And I, I was, I'm really lucky that I could like, you know, like go home and have this like crazy feminist rant at my family and they would agree with me. Right? <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm liking like, you so much. Feminist rant is my wheelhouse. <laughs> 
but it's like, cause it's exactly this, like, you know, like they can't see me. They're yeah. not seeing me. They're seeing the outline of my figure and nothing else. Because if you looked at me, I was not okay. That's a really beautiful way to phrase that. But they also weren't seeing me before either, right? So it's that interesting space where it's like, you know, if you actually had looked at me in either space, like in one, I was like happy environment and in the other, like I was like not okay. And so it's an interesting space to kind of have moved through that. And now like, like I'm slightly below my goal weight and that's like the opposite of what everybody else is doing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and my goal weight is heavier than any social norms. Because if I get sick, I lose weight so fast. Yeah. So when I get really sick, I lose between three and five pounds a week. And so I need to have a buffer. Wow. Which is a very weird thing to try and do in modern society where, you know, I'm five and a half feet tall and my goal weight is 155 pounds. Okay. Right? Yeah. Which puts me at the high end of like the body mass index where people are like, are you sure? <laughs> Please tell me the doctors aren't asking you, are you sure? No, no, my, my doctor is really excited if I put on just that little bit more weight, but everybody else, like if I, if I get sick a little bit sick, like if I have like a little kind of mini flare up and I lose a little bit of weight, people will make comments about how good I'm looking. Right. And I find it just, that's really interesting where you're sitting there and you're like, Hmm, (laughs) I lost weight. That was upsetting for me, but you think I look better. I've had friends go through chemo where people start going, oh, you look fantastic. <laughs> like, or even like saying, gosh, I wish I could have. It's like, no, don't, no. Mm-mm. <laughs> um, I had friends do that, actually, when yeah. I was first really sick. They were like, oh, you're so lucky. Uh, I don't even know what to say, and that's very rare. <laughs> um, well, but I think it really speaks to how damaged some of us are yeah. by sort of the social requirements to look certain ways. And they were often my prettiest friends, like the ones that were obviously working the hardest, Hmm. right? That kind of, you know, people were like, everybody thinks you're beautiful and you think I'm lucky because I throw up all my food. (laughs) (laughs) Like like something in this dynamic is really broken and I'm not actually sure it's me. (laughs) No, no, I would actually put a lot of money on that was not you. Right. Like it, and, and that happened a surprising number of times. So it's not just one person, but if I kind of think through my social circles, probably the kind of in each space, the like prettiest, most popular person had that opinion. Sorry. Um, one of the things I want to talk to you about, because it's something that keeps getting brought up in at least my support groups for my disorder is there's a lot of the younger people are always asking about dating and how do you date with a chronic illness? Was that anything that, that was a concern or something that you dealt with when you were? Oh yeah. Okay. So, uh, I was diagnosed with something called inflammatory bowel disease when I was like 22 and it is like the least sexy (laughs) name you could come up with. And it's other name is Crohn's disease, which is also Mm. super unsexy. And, (laughs) And all of the things that happen are gross. And, um, and the person I was with at the time, um, we'd been living together for like a year and a half, the sweetest person in the world, super squeamish could not handle it. 
at all. And he tried so hard and it was brutal because like I, I couldn't talk to him about what was going on because he couldn't handle it. And so the dynamic of our relationship became super toxic really fast because like I have all sorts of really scary stuff going on and I can't tell him because he can't hear about it. And, and so that was, it was actually like really quite brutal in that moment, but also incredibly good learning for like long-term relationship stuff where, um, my, my partner, he's now, he's not phased by anything. Like, it's just like nothing phases him, but he's always been like that. So like I was sick when I met him and he just didn't really care. Like it just didn't, it didn't bother him that I would like excuse myself from the table and go throw up and then clean up and then come back. Like it just, (laughs) he'd be like, he'd be like, so what do you need? Wow. Right. Like, like not, you know, like he'll, he'll leave me be when I'm not feeling well and yet check in on me. So I don't feel like smothered, but I feel like mildly (laughs) taken care of. And so that, like that balance of, right. Like I can tell him about stuff if it's upsetting me, but, and, and it's not, but he also, he's like, you know, I don't, I don't need to know the details. So tell me what you need to tell me. Right. Like there's not like this weird voyeuristic component that sometimes enters into it. And so there's all of these kind of pieces where, you know, like, like he, my, like my illness is just one of those things that we have to deal with sometimes and it screws things up sometimes. And he just rolls with it. I was like, we were camping once and I'm like, I need to go home. Yeah. I need to go home right now because I'm going to get really sick and I want to be at home. And I understand that it's 11 o'clock at night and we're a three hour (laughs) drive from home, but we're packing all of our shit up and we are going home. And he's like, okay, that's what we're doing. (laughs) Okay, sure. Right. Like it's just, and, and so to, to have somebody, but, but part of that's in his background too. So he grew up as a ski patroller. He's got just tons of experience dealing with stuff going wrong. It's almost like the best Littman's test for a relationship is chronic illness. <laughs> like you are going to know the real for better or worse right there. Well, it, it's ama- it was amazingly easy to parent given that you've already had all these stunningly honest <laughs> conversations, right? Yes. <laughs> like, you all, like a lot of the kind of conversations you have to have to have children yeah. are about things being gross and unpleasant and difficult and making hard choices and stuff going wrong and things, you know, like, okay, so kids are sick. Who's staying home today? Well, and also just, I mean, if you want to talk about the ultimate chaos theory, it is parenting. And the yeah. second most chaos theory is in a chronic illness. Like there's no way to plan for everything, but you do need to have certain things in check. Yeah, for sure. And that, you know, the sort of the understanding is kind of, is, is absolutely huge. And then the kind of language around it. So we have developed slowly a set of like keywords that I use to kind of explain what's going on right now. Because nobody needs the like the five minute dialogue on how I'm doing when I've just come out of the bathroom, <laughs> right? Um, but but people that are in my life and, and around need like a check of where we are on the like you know I was playing Candy Crush and felt like being alone for five minutes, you know, and the kids have been home all day and <laughs> everybody's a little stir crazy to like you know, we might be going to the hospital later. Uh, And in that spectrum, I sit somewhere all the time. 
and usually at neither of the ends, right? Usually, you know, somewhere in the like, mostly okay, right? We're generally fine. But you need to have a bit of a language that you've developed so you can do those quick like, you know, I'm good, I'm, I'm like, I'm this not good. You know, today we're slightly trembly, right? Oh, <laughs> or today trembly. we're... I like that. Right? Like, like, like I got trembly guts. Like, <laughs> it's like a, you know, it's a way of saying it that's not that's too descriptive. <laughs> right? But it's kind of like, it kind of, it lets you kind of know, you know, I'm iffy, I, right? That sort of middle space. You know, I'm, I can, I can express that and, and to decouple like how I'm emotionally feeling about it from how I'm physically feeling about it. Cause those are two different things as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I can be like, you know, my, my guts are a little trembly and I'm really nervous that it's getting worse. Yeah. Right. It's very different than like my guts are feeling trembly, but I'm feeling really hopeful that after this nap, I'm going to go have, they'll be better. I like that. I'd never even considered how to pull those two things apart and together. That is brilliant. No wonder you're such a good mediator. You've got (laughs) (laughs) You need to write a book. I spent a lot of time in counseling figuring myself out too, though. Okay, here's a question. Because, um, again, I I might obsess on this too much for guests, Mm -hmm. and I'm so sorry for anyone who I do, but we go broke in America because nothing is covered even when you're insured. Do you guys actually get mental health care there? Uh, it depends on the type of mental health care. So um, I spent five years in a psychiatric-based group therapy setting for eating disorders. Okay. Um, my eating disorders because of my Crohn's, right? So when I eat food, it hurts and it causes me to vomit, so I would like to never eat again. Ah. Uh. <laughs> Oh, that's um, so, thought of. Wow, yeah. <laughs> so I have what is considered by the medical establishment to be called secondary anorexia. Ah, okay. Where so it's not a primary anorexia because it's it's not the problem. It's because of Crohn's disease. I actually I, I no longer have the sensation of hunger. I haven't felt hungry in twenty years. Wow. Um. So I can forget to eat. And sometimes I might intentionally forget to eat. Okay. <laughs> right? Like that. So that, that's a very real space. And so to actually get that figured out so that I could have a healthy relationship with food, I was under psychiatric care for a bit. But that's fully funded. Okay. So that is like weekly psychiatric care. They can write prescriptions. I never needed any. But if, you know, you had depression or anxiety, they can write those kinds of prescriptions. That whole space would be covered. Okay. If I go to a counselor that's not a psychiatrist, then it's usually out of pocket or through an extended medical benefit plan. So that's a little bit different. But one of the things that I'm involved with um, and exists here is peer support. Ah. So I I do online anonymous because bowels are disgusting and people (laughs) don't want to be associated with their bowels. Um, I do online anonymous peer counseling for people that have been recently diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Wow. And, and so, so what would some of the things you would tell someone who'd recently been diagnosed? Well, it depends on where they're at and what they need. So we connect, um, we're connected as like, um, like peer mentors through 
the local Crohn's and colitis association. And they basically kind of pair people up and somebody that's willing to be a peer mentor will have like kind of one to three people that they're communicating with in like a secure online platform at any given period of time. But those conversations back and forth are really just about where they're at and what they're up to. And so people will usually the kinds of things people need to deal with are like, how do I tell my family I can't do Christmas the way I used to do Christmas? Wow. I can't handle that. Right. Like, how do I have that conversation with them? How do I figure out how to do this holiday when what my family's always done is going to kill me? So that's something I was going to ask you about with a, a just general, I wouldn't even say society. I would say this goes through most cultures being so based around food. How does that affect you in family situations, friends situations? I mean, almost everything I can think of involves like, going for coffee, going for wine. Going <laughs> well, I love going for, for coffee. Um, I, I have a few strategies that I employ um, because I have a set of foods I cannot eat. And if I eat them, I end up in the hospital at the end of the week and we don't want that. Um, and the list includes a few things that are in a lot of stuff. And so at home, I cook a lot from scratch. And, um, that's part of like my mental healing process is like really getting into cooking food from food, um, and that kind of process. But then I mean, you want to be able to go out with your friends. I, I want to go out for a glass of wine and appies just as much as everybody else does. Um, but I can't always. And so what I, what I like to do is I like to find out where we're going ahead of time. And I like to call them and I like to say like, Hey, I have a few food allergies that are quite severe. I'm coming in on Friday. Can I talk with the kitchen at this time when it's not busy about what I might be able to eat off your menu? That is some really good planning. Well, it's, it shifts the entire conversation because I've gone into a restaurant before and I'm like, I have a soy allergy. Um, and I would be like this or this or this. And they come back from the kitchen. They're like, no. Okay. Well, how about, and, and I've had the odd restaurant be like, we can't, we can't feed you. Oh, wow. Right. And so there's nothing like sitting around with a group of people who are really excited to be out and having somebody <laughs> and having the restaurant be like, uh, we can't feed your friend. Yeah, you would. You and my co-host Kiros would have so much to talk. I don't know if you heard his his interview, but you guys have a lot to chat about with that. Yeah, but it's it's really interesting if you don't care if you eat out though, because then you can just go and you can have the glass of wine. Yeah, and everybody else can eat. You can be like, oh no, I'm good. Just ate before we came. It's good, right? Like I, I'm I'm good. I, I right, and and so then you're not like destroying the festive thing with with your like well this is awkward and doesn't work for anybody <laughs> right like it's so I do a bit of that kind of pre-planning because like my my like my little set of things I can't eat is is like weird and awkward enough that if somebody doesn't know what they're doing they can't really cook for me or you know I always try to take a dish to a potluck I always try to you know I try to kind of help because even like, I mean, my parents try so hard and every once in a while they'll poison me. Oh no. Oh, they, must they try so, so hard. Right. Like it's just, it's just it's like, there's certain things that like sneak in where he wouldn't expect them. Uh, Kiros has been educating me on what can include dairy and I had no clue. <laughs> like, 
Yeah, so I can eat dairy, but I can't eat soy. And But, like, soy, dairy, wheat, they end up in corn. It ends up in a lot of stuff. And it, it's there for a whole bunch of reasons. Like, hydrolyzed soy protein is used in place of salt, and it's used as, like, an MSG supplement. So you, know, you can have, like, canned tuna in water, and it'll have soy in it. Or you can have, like, like these sort of weird places that you wouldn't expect to look for it. But it also means that if you're not careful and you're not a label reader and you don't think to look, your ground cinnamon might be a soy product. Are you serious? Sometimes, I right? Like, so, so, like, I mean, I, I read the weirdest stuff. Your, your waxed apples at the grocery store can be waxed with a vegetable-based wax. Oh, my well, God. Well, that's a soy product, usually. <gasps> wow. Okay, so you have some awesome life hacks. I'm asking <laughs> for some more. Like, is there an app that would, like, help you know all of this? Or well, I think a lot of it is just slowly figuring it out. And <laughs> that has a steep learning curve though. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that you, you build from, you don't have a lot of energy in the beginning. So it's not like you're venturing far and wide when you're sort of recovering from being not well. And so it's like that, like you sort of, you have your safe food and then you slowly build out. So I know I can eat Turkey and cranberries and homemade stuffing. I know I can eat pumpkin pie if we make it ourselves I know I can eat Brussels sprouts. I can eat maple syrup. Like there's a set of things that I know I can eat. And in this sort of space, there's a huge variety of food that's safe and almost all Italian food. Right. And so it's like, so this is safe. And so then you just, you kind of add little bits of more that you know are safe. And then you kind of build this sort of large set of things that tend to be good. Um, If I'm feeling really well and I happen to like, make a small mistake and get something that had a little bit, I'm probably fine. Okay. So it's not, it's not like an anaphylaxis. <coughs> However, the, the results of, you know, experimenting and getting like a little bit more than I should are so extreme that it's not worth it. Hmm. Cause nobody's like, Oh, let's go be hospitalized for three weeks and fed by a tube. I can't imagine why not. That sounds like a It's, you know, well, maybe, maybe self-feedings for suckers, as Homer Simpson used to say, right? Oh my God, I remember that episode. (laughs) Oh, that was so funny. (laughs) I was just thinking of the, I don't know if I would necessarily mind 24 to 48 hours of no one talking to me and being alone, but it's not like that in the hospitals. Well, I'm an introvert and hospitals are overwhelming. I... Oh my God. I can't even imagine being like, I am not an introvert, but I certainly love my alone time. And there is no alone time in a fucking hospital. They are in your face. Well, and there's no privacy, right? No. So as soon as you have some like weird, I mean, I've been hospitalized more times for like secondary stuff due to like medication complications than for like primary Crohn's disease. And the number of times that the doctor will come in and be like, so I have a bunch of residents here and they've never seen this before. Can they come in and take a look? And you're sitting there and you're like, how many of them are there? (laughs) And when did they start laying 12 year olds into the program? (laughs) Well, and like, like I'm basically unclothed and you're lucky I have no sense of shame left. (laughs) Right. Because they want to look where and do what? Oh my God. And there's like, and, and the hospital, like, I mean, they're, they're very sweet. They mean really well, but most of them have never really been a patient. 
Yeah. And so they have no freaking clue. Like I remember being like, my whole digestive system is inflamed. I'm really not okay. I have a really high fever and I can't keep anything down. So I go into the hospital and they need to give me basically Tylenol by an enema. And this guy shows up and he's like six foot four and he's Eastern European with the largest hands I've ever seen. You are not coming near me. I am sorry. (laughs) Like like that guy is not giving me an enema. Oh my God. Like I, and, and so, and then like a week later, I'm still in the hospital and I hear the nurses talking about this story. And they thought it was so funny because no one has ever said that before. And they're like, but who in their right mind sends the guy with the biggest hands in the entire building to do that? I, I almost can't <laughs> even continue that. Is, and I'm sorry for laughing. But, oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I only got a small taste of this giving birth where, like, everyone is coming in. And you're like, you know, usually in my past life, people bought me dinner before, like, <laughs> I should at least know your middle name before you're, but like the level of vulnerability you must have in these situations is astounding. Like I, I get asked weird questions because the disorder I have is weird and rare. And, mm-hmm. um, most of the dislocations I have, they never get to see. So it's kind of like fun party trick, I guess. <laughs> and um, <laughs> the worst that happened was like this adorable 20 something year old student was like, oh, just dislocate your wrist for me. And I'm like, huh, aren't you cute? <laughs> but I, I, I just, I never had that experience where it was something so vulnerable, except when I had my children. And I, I can't even imagine what that would be like. Well, and the weird part is that because it's so routine for them, they often forget to think. It's like uh, it's like often I feel like after surgery, sometimes people need trauma counseling. Wow, please uh, elaborate on that. Well, so something will happen. So I've had a few uh, emergency surgeries based on kind of secondary infections before. Yeah. And so it's like you go from being okay to really not okay to in the hospital to you're good, go home. That's and, a lot. <laughs> and mentally... Like it's painful, it's scary, it's all of these kinds of things, and there's these people and they're hurting you for your own good. And <laughs> and yes. that's a very difficult set of mental gymnastics to do. Mm-hmm. Right? Especially if wherever the plate is that needs the surgery is sensitive, right? So if you need to be cut somewhere, you shouldn't be cut. Um it's a very, very different, difficult set of kind of mental gymnastics. And people have started talking about this with women that undergo like emergency C-section. Wow. Right. Wow. That there's, there's a trauma there, right? Like you kind of, you have this ex- expectation about how things will go and then things go really off the rails and then you're really hurt at the end, right? Because it's, you know, there's stitches and there's wound care and it's really overwhelming. And in that space, you're very powerless. And so... And you're also supposed to take care of a small new human, too. That always just staggers my mind that they just send women with cesarean sections just home with a baby a week later. (laughs) Like Men do not get to go in and have their internal organs taken out and then be told that they should also take care of someone. It's true, although I'm not sure here if you would be sent home alone if, if you didn't have support. <laughs> wow. Because I kind of so I kind of feel like it, so 
So I didn't, I didn't have a C-section for either of my kids. Um, but there's this sort of sense at the hospital that you go home when you're ready. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm just, I, my jaw will need to be picked up off the floor when you're right. I was out of the hospital almost like 48 hours. <laughs> well, I went home pretty quickly with both my kids, but, um, I got the sense both times that if I felt like I needed to stay for another day, they would have kept me. Wow. There's this sort of, right. Like this kind of, because, and then, and then there's the nurse that comes for the home visits and there's like, there, there's this a, magic you speak of. <laughs> so <laughs> they actually talk to you after you have a baby. <laughs> wow. There, yeah. It, and a lot of it depends on how well you're doing. So when you're leaving, there's like a, a bit of a needs assessment to see if you need extra support and to see like, like they won't let you go home if your baby's not latching properly, if you haven't managed to like feed them and like do that kind of set of stuff. You know, um, I'm going to do a panel sometime of um, all the people from different countries and we're all going to just compare <laughs> notes so that it isn't just like politicians telling us what <laughs> other countries are like. I think we're all going to have to just sit down and talk and um, we're at an hour and I cannot believe we're at an hour <laughs> because I will kidnap you and just keep talking to you for the rest of the day. Um, so I will end with my favorite question, which okay. is favorite swear word. Is there a different one in Canada that I don't know about? <laughs> I mean, my, my current favorite is twat waffle. Oh my God. I love that. No way. <laughs> um, really however, um, I also, Dan Savage recently has been talking about how instead of calling people pussies, we should call them scrotes. Oh, so much better. They're, and I and really like that more, one too. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Vulnerable. <laughs> <laughs> we could do feminist rant too. That's... <laughs> That's wonderful. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have? Probably. We'll just have to chat again. <laughs> we please. We really should. I'm going to stop recording right now, but thank you so much. <clears throat> thank you so much for listening to this week's interview. Please share the episode with someone who needs it and join us next week when Kiris and I are going to be talking about misconceptions about chronic and invisible illness. Tweet some of your favorites back at us at invisible N-O-T-B-R-K. Please press subscribe, say really nice things about us on iTunes reviews, and until we meet again next week, be kind, be gentle, and be a badass.